Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Chronicles of Nannia, a nanny resource podcast made for nannies by me, a nanny. This is your host, Martha Tyler. And this week, we are going to be talking about grief and a lot of the different forms that grief can take in our nanny days. Um, and to do that, I have brought on Shannon McFarland. Hello, Shannon. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I am totally tickled to be here because talking about grief is one of my favorite things ever. Which is so lovely because I, I think it's really scary for a lot of people. So I, I'm so glad to hear that there is joy in it too. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about it is that people think of grief and they define it as being all sorrow or sadness. And, and grief is all of the emotions that you feel in a relationship in its normal course. And then when that attachment changes somehow, somebody dies or gets sick or something like divorce happens, um, you still have those emotions. There's still the joy and the frustration and the sadness and all of these other things that are normal, appropriate emotions. It's not just being sad. Right. Yeah. Well, before we get in too much into the, the actual interview part, let's hear a little bit about your background and where, where you're coming from. Ah, well, I am primarily an artist. I'm a photographer and a painter, and my work revolves around grief. I create a lot of memorial portraits for families. Um, Primarily, my work is of animal subjects, so non-humans. Hmm. In the past, I've done a lot of work with families who have children in hospice or children that are living with serious medical conditions. And a big part of my work has been being with those families through that process through art, giving them art as a means to express the things that they can't say or they don't know how to say, especially with very young children. Um, I'm not a mental health professional and I don't ever try to pretend to be one, but there's something very freeing about making connections with life through art and being able to express something without having someone come and say, well, that's not right. Or you need to 
you need to just move on. You know, those kinds of things. So there's that freedom through art that I think that we need when we're working and being with something like grief. Yes. And I have my own young person as well, who is a medically exceptional person. We spend a lot of time at the hospital. Um, and so grief has been a very real part of our relationship because there's so much uncertainty and there's so much change and there's, it's hard to get ready for surgery when you're three years old. Hmm. Um, you know, things like that. So it's uh I have a very tender place in my heart for families that are going through hard things because I know that these are families that are underserved and when their their friends and family feel that things are getting hard and uncomfortable, they get uncomfortable too and they don't know what to do. So their default is to do nothing right. or to turn away because they don't want to do the wrong thing. Um, so I, I want to be there for, for families that are having a hard time. Yeah, yeah. And what a, a wonderful mission that is. Um, well, great. Let's get into the, the actual interview portion and, and talk a little bit about, especially so as nannies, I, I think that it can be hard to navigate um, at times, big transitions, um, especially when they are they're happening to your nanny family or they're happening to you because there's also this disconnect between, um, you know, like a lot of nanny families are like, you're like our family, you're part of the family. And then sometimes the rubber meets the road on that and, and it doesn't mm -hmm. turn out to be true. Right. Um, and so, and I, I feel like grief can potentially highlight some of that um, or the event that led to the grief can. Um, so I am curious, um, how do you start that conversation? Because children are, are not gonna ignore it. You know, they, right. they point out the elephant in the room. Um, and I, I, gosh, I love them for it. So how do you explain <laughs> like death to a young child? Uh, this is, this is such a wonderful discussion to have. Uh, as adults, we want to protect and shield children. And so many times we assume that the best way to do that is to talk around things instead of be honest and frank. And right. death is a big one. So there's all the euphemisms. We go into euphemism city, there's passing on and there's um, going to a better place. Um, with pets, there's being put down or there's going to sleep or that kind of stuff. Um, we lost grandma yesterday. Mm. Really, where did she go? Right. You know, right. especially with very young children who are incredibly literal thinkers, just talking around it doesn't help them. And in, in fact, it does two things that are really harmful. One is that it says, this is something that we, that we don't discuss mm -hmm. because we can't, we can't address it directly. So there's this feeling that there's shame involved, that mm -hmm. it's something that's not to be talked about 
that you shouldn't ask questions about it. And the kids, you know, they sense that um, the tension that adults have when they ask them about death. Mm-hmm. And they're, the adults are trying to come up with the best way to say something without saying something. The other thing that happens is that by not modeling for them how to talk about death, that we create or we continue this thing that we have where we don't know how to talk about death. And it just goes on and on and on because they're looking to us for examples. They learn from us. So when we have trouble saying death, dying, dead, then they learn that those are essentially bad words that should not be used. Right. And I, so I, I, I advocate for those, those real words that are very direct. So-and-so died and Mm -hmm. that person's body or that animal's body stopped working and you can talk about the specific reasons why that might have been but i mean that's the the real part of it the body stopped working right yeah and then that opens up room to ask questions like one of my nanny kids that has experienced a death the the parents were were very um adamant that we talk about that the that their pet's body stopped working but also fill in those gaps of like it's not something that is is going to happen to you (laughs) right now you know like this is not Mm -hmm. um but it left room for her to ask questions and to investigate instead of those euphemisms and talking around things that I, I really think that a lot of like the, the monster in the closet or under the bed is made up of all the things that kids think they're not allowed to question, <laughs> you know, like, yes. and so that just gives so much power to, to the myth of what's happening. Um, not even myth, because I think myths can be really powerful to the, to the lie around what's happening or to the shame around what's happening, um, that it grows and grows and grows and becomes this really big, scary thing in their brains when if we just talked about it directly, that's what, that's what helps take those monsters down. That's right. And, and for children to know that they can go to adults and trust them to have honest conversations, that they, they know that they can ask questions and receive good information or the adult may say you know i don't know the answer to that let's find out together mm-hmm. yeah. or let me ask somebody that i think might know but the we are so um we're so interested in protecting them and, and shielding them and i think when adults are experiencing their own grief which they're not very fluent in and they don't know how to move around in that themselves the idea of supporting someone else who is younger, who is dependent, who is also experiencing grief and needing support with that, it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So one of the easiest ways to minimize that, they think, is to just put the bandage on it and call it something else. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and and I am curious because nannies are in this um, somewhat precarious spot of of they they have to handle it in the way that the the family would like you to handle it. So, mm-hmm. what information should a nanny maybe gather from families um, before trying to answer questions? from the child in the best way possible and most direct possible. That's so sticky. I think so much of this depends on the relationship that you have. Um, And then there's also the concern that, that at the time that you ask this might be an extremely difficult time for the family. And so it feels like one more demand to make and you don't want to do that, but you have to. I, I would ask about what things are off limits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think certainly things like religion and spirituality are going to be families and they are going to want to impart those beliefs in their own ways. And they may or may not be what you believe in, which is completely fine. But the, it, where I see the conflict, I'm just thinking about how this would be for me by working right. in this situation. That said, um, here's what we're telling our kids. And it was a bunch of stuff and nonsense about <laughs> how grandma had gone to sleep and she wasn't ever going to wake up. And I would, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I honestly yeah. don't know what I would do because my job as a caregiver, as a nanny would be to advocate for the kids and right. to do what's right for the kids. So um, I would ask the family, but also give myself room that when a young person asks me a question that I have the space to say, this is what I believe. One of the big things with this is that families have their own spiritual beliefs or religious beliefs or none and being able to um, speak in a way that honors those going to be important. Asking the family about what things are important for you to know that are being presented to your children. Um, There's also space for the nanny as an individual to say, not that I disagree with your religion or your beliefs, I believe something different. Um, And if not to plaster those beliefs on the children, but if somebody were to ask me a question, then I, I could respond with what the religious belief is based on what I've learned from the family. And then suggest, you know, this is something that you could your parents about or your grandparents or your adults. Um, but also have room there so that I could say, this is what I believe in my culture or in my religion. Um, and, and what do you think happens? Mm-hmm. Feel like you, because I think that's a, that's a space that sometimes we don't give young people when we're talking about death is that we're pressing all of these things onto them and we're not we're not checking with them to say, how are you, how does this process with you? Or does that seem like it's plausible? Or 
eyebrow at me. I see that. Um, you know, what, what do you think happens? And how could we talk about that? And, you know, the honest truth is that nobody really knows. Yeah. So there's a lot open for discussion. Yes. I, I really love that idea. And I think um, as nannies, one of my favorite techniques when I, when something comes up that I haven't had a chance to ask or talk to the parents about yet, which I, I would certainly try to do, but in a time of grief, sometimes it's hard. Or if it's like your first day back after um, someone has died, then one, a phrase that I really love is, I would love to talk to you about this, but I really know your parents would love to talk to you about this even more. So let's mm -hmm. wait and talk to them because the reason that I love that is because it doesn't shut the door on your discussion with the right. child, but it leaves room that you are going to do it with their parents involved. Um, mm -hmm. And then you can move on from there. But you know, that initial talk, if you haven't had the opportunity to check in with the parents about what's off limits and things like that, I think that that's a, a decent um, idea. But I also love what do you, you know, after talking about it and saying what your beliefs are, asking the child what their beliefs are, that's brilliant. And I have never thought of that. Yeah, well, it's, um, I, kids are so, they're so perceptive. And they're they watching are. the adults and what we're doing. And they see that we have different beliefs and that we respond to things differently. And they know that we have different perspectives. They pick up on all of that, even if they may not be able to articulate it. And so honoring that they also have a place in that by asking you, what are you, what are you feeling about this? How does it, what would make sense to you? What do you think is possible? It's a beautiful conversation to have. And um, sometimes it goes completely silly and sideways. Right. And sometimes it's very heavy and it can change from day to day with the same young person. Yeah. But then you get to see the shades of their grief which is so lovely. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and give them a space where they know that they can share that kind of stuff. Right, yes. So how is grief different for children than for adults? Oh, this is so juicy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The sticky part about grief in children is that they are moving through developmental stages. And so cognitively, their understanding of the concepts of death changes as they mature. And their um, emotional awareness and their, you know, prefrontal cortex, amygdala connection, all of that stuff is still working, working itself out and building up. There are four, four big types of death that um, make this an interesting experience for young people. The first one is that death is irreversible. Um, with very young people, they have a hard time grasping that. So, you know, you might get the questions about after the grandfather has died, well, when is he coming back? Because he died, but when is he coming back? 
those kinds of things. Um, the second one is finality, that it is, it is irreversible and it's final. There's nothing more than we can do. Death is death and that, that is the end of life on this planet in this body as we know it. There may be other things going on. We don't really know what those are. But in terms of being in a body that you know and love, that is the end. Uh, the next one is that death is inevitable. It happens to every living thing on the planet, always. Um, except for there's, there's this one creature that I learned about with my young person where it doesn't ever die. It just continues to regenerate. Oh, interesting. Uh, I wish oh. I could remember what it was. It lives in the ocean, I believe. I was, I was gonna it say was, it sounds like an ocean critter. Yeah, it was wild. He told me about it, and I said, "What? No, that can't be right." So we looked it up, and sure enough, it's true. Um, so, except for that creature, death <laughs> <laughs> yes. comes to everybody. And the last thing is causality. That uh, death happens for reasons. Sometimes we understand those reasons very well, and sometimes we don't. And with young people, one of the sticky points is that there's that magical thinking that happens where there's, uh, there's the very egocentric state of mind where if something bad happens, then that must mean that I did something to cause it. Right. Um, so as, as children mature, and they move through their developmental stages at whatever ages they happen, um, they start pushing around these concepts of death. And so death begins to mean different things to them and grief begins to mean different things to them. So as adults, we are allegedly fully formed and functional. Um, we're supposed to be fully developed. I should say. I love um, that allegedly. That was very <laughs> Well, you know, because there's those people that you wonder about. Yes. Um, I guess sometimes I, there are days that I feel allegedly fully formed. Yes. And we all have different abilities and capacities as yes. well that change on a daily basis. So just because you're doing really well one day doesn't mean that the next day is going to be the same. Right. Um, but it's like that with young people magnified so hugely because they're experiencing things for the first time with this new knowledge, this new understanding, this new awareness that they're developing as they age. And as adults, we've already pushed through all of that. So we might have, it would be like having a series of midlife crises right. all very closely packed together where you're moving through life and you're thinking, this is new information. Everything has changed in my life. Yeah. For young people, it's like that. And I think that adults, they're so often really frustrated with that because they think, well, you were fine with this last month and I've answered all of your questions. And now there's this new set of questions and you seem confused about what happened before. What is going on? Or there may be behavioral regression. Mm -hmm. So things like being able to tie your own shoes or using the toilet or um, doing other kinds of self-care like bathing or, or even speech. Young people can regress in those significantly 
when they are experiencing grief because all of their brain capacity seemingly is going toward figuring this stuff out and trying to understand how do I exist in this world where it seems like everything has changed for me. So they're going to pull back on stuff that had been established, usually fairly newly established. And that creates more stress for caregivers, whether they're their nannies or parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, whatever the case may be. Um, and that's a that's another ripple in there. So I think with with the young people, it's important for us to remember that their experience of grief really truly is incredibly different from what we experience because they have so many of those oh my gosh, my life has just completely changed with this information moments on top of feeling that about the grief. Yeah. And, and I, I think a lot about, you know, children don't have the coping mechanisms in place that we do and, and whether or not our coping mechanisms are, you know, quote unquote healthy or not, they're there to help us feel safe. Um, and children don't even have that a lot of the time because they they haven't needed them yet. And so they don't have, you know, the familiar behaviors to turn back to. And I think that is part of the reason we see regression with this sometimes. I also think that um, if the family is the one grieving, that is a beautiful opportunity for the nanny who who you know may be experiencing some grief too depending on on the reasons um or depending on who died or or you know just a lot of factors but the nanny certainly is not quite at the center of the grief in the way the family Mm -hmm. is and so you can be there to provide that extra care and that extra connection that the child is seeking through those regressed behaviors because a lot of times they do regress in these care you know, needing more care. And that's, that's a bid for connection. And the nanny can meet that in a way that the parents currently might not be able to meet it. Yes. I'm so glad that you said it in that way, a bid for connection rather than the, the bid for attention or attention seeking, because right. that is what it is. I'm right. feeling completely dysregulated. Everything is upside down and sideways and I don't know what to do and I want to be able to turn to a safe person and be cared for and feel safe and like there's something consistent and secure. Yes, yes. Um, I, I'm curious how, how is it the same for children and adults? Because, you know, we talked about they have all of this on top of, of normal grief. Um, or, or the mm-hmm. same grief that we're experiencing. So I'd love to just talk about, because I think a lot of a lot of people, a lot of listeners, and, and myself included, haven't had the opportunity to really talk out loud about what grief is like. So I think it can be quite isolating. So I'd love to just talk about kind of, you know, more general, what is grief? Yeah, well, it, people have different definitions of it, um, I think of grief as being a an emotional response to a 
change in the status of a relationship, a change in circumstance. So there's, there's loss. So you can have, when we say grief, instantly people think about death. Mm -hmm. Um, There can be grief when a a parent loses a job or when a family moves to a new house or a new city. There can be grief when a best friend decides not to hang out with you anymore. Mm, Um, Grief about doing poorly in school. Grief about a sibling that is requiring a lot of extra care or is receiving a lot of extra attention for some sort of notable achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so many ways that we, or so many reasons why we experience grief. And at the heart of it, there's always this, there's a change in circumstance. It's because of death or illness or all kinds of things. But the, the important thing is that the relationship continues which is what, where the grief grows. So uh, if your best friend breaks up with you, the reason why it hurts so much is because of the grief, because you have that attachment, because you still care very much about this person and that it's hurtful and that you're going to feel grief about the relationship for as long as you have the attachment to that person. So with a best friend, that grief may be more short-lived. If you're talking about a sibling or a parent or a dog or um, one of your good friends in school that died, um, it's a little bit different because, well, it's a lot different. It's not a little different. It's a lot different because you don't ever stop loving that being. Right. You just don't. And we have this notion of grief that um, it's very timeline based. You know, you need you need two weeks to get back to normal and then you need six months to grieve. And by that time, everything should be fine. You know, worst case scenario, you're going to go through all of the first anniversary stuff. You get to the end of that first year and bang, you're back in action, just as good as you ever were. And and that's not the truth because the attachment exists because what people forget is that if if your loss is a person or a a significant relationship to you even though you get to keep the relationship and it changes after death um that it doesn't it doesn't just stop developing it's not frozen in time and so as you are moving forward in your life you are looking back and you're seeing all of the ways in which you can't have the relationship that you really treasured that if your parent dies that your parent doesn't get to see you graduate from school or get married or buy a house or start a family or get a job so the grief doesn't the grief doesn't stop. It's not a quick and dirty thing. And it's not just the sadness. It's the joy remembering, oh my gosh, my mom really would have loved this. Or yeah. it's the frustration about how could you leave me when I was so young, even though 
she had breast cancer and it wasn't a choice that she made, you know, things like that. There's so many things that come out of it and they're all normal and healthy and valid and worthy expressions of emotion, of attachment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I uh, have seen a, a metaphor before and um I'm sure you have to uh, dealing in grief, but uh, that talks about grief being a ball inside of a box. Mm-hmm. And That's it, a good one. It, yeah, and it hits the buzzer, like it hits that button. Yes. And sometimes the ball is very big and it feels like it's always on the buzzer. And sometimes mm-hmm. the ball can shrink down to a smaller size and then, you know, it hits the buzzer less frequently. But the ball is always there and the buzzer is always there. Yes. And sometimes and you never know when they're going to contact. Yeah. Exactly. The surprise of it that just yeah. kind of knocks you, knocks the wind out of you. Um, I think especially with, with children, we think, oh, well, you know, they're going to, um, he's been good for three months. So he seems to be over it. And then there's the day that he can't get out of bed or um, he's completely not interested in grooming himself at all or you know, stuff like that. He's crying a lot. And it's, that's just normal because like you said, you don't ever know when you're going to get that burst of grief. And sometimes there's short little squalls and sometimes it's a tsunami that carries you away. And the best way that I've found to deal with that is just to accept that that is a normal part of the love that I feel. And that Mm -hmm. comes with the relationship. So it is, you mentioned that there's a bid for connection earlier between a young person and an adult. And I see this as a bid for connection in your relationship that Mm -hmm. we get reminded of the things that are really important to us. And they're not always the happy, shiny things. Sometimes we get struck with these bursts of grief because grief is saying, hey, you know, this relationship could use some attention right now. And you need to be with us because this relationship is a part of who you are today. And there's something here for you to look at and to be with. I love that. That's really beautifully put. Hey, nannies. I wanted to tell you about a new app that has really changed my nanny game. It is called Nannyist. And Nannyist is a new free web application that's designed specifically for nannies, which like we never get our own stuff. We're usually using like parent created apps and things like that. So this is really, really exciting. With the Nannyist app, you can capture and share real time care updates with parents in an easy to use post format that's sort of like your own private Instagram. I know that a lot of times I'm taking up a lot of memory on my phone, taking pictures and sending them throughout the day. So this is a really great way to send them and then get them off of your phone. 
Um, and parents really want to know what their kids are doing. And I find that a picture really is a thousand words. You don't have time to type out everything. So this is a great way to include parents in your nanny day. And it's intended to formalize or supplement any verbal updates that you're already providing. Uh, Nannyist also has professional tools that help you manage the business side of your career. So there's a performance review script, which is so helpful, and a time entry interface and a place to log your mileage and receipts. So all of that you don't have to think about. You just put it in the app and then you can access it when you're ready to like get reimbursed at the end of the week or the month or however you do it, which is great. So to learn more about Nannyist and to create your free account, that's right, listener, I just said the word free account, visit nannyist.com. That's N-A-N-N-I-E-S-T.com. Check it out. Yeah, I, I'm curious about, we've talked a little bit about ways of, of nannies in particular showing up for families. But just more in, in general or specifically nanny showing up for families, whichever way you'd like to take it. Um, <laughs> what are what are some ways of showing up for those who are grieving? Because I you mentioned at the beginning that sometimes people get so in the like in their own heads about messing up. And so they pull away and that's maybe the worst case scenario. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, this is, this is hard because I think, I think to be, uh, first we have to be comfortable with ourselves. And one of the reasons that people turn away from grievers is because there's an automatic association that the brain does. There are, um, Neuropsychologists have studied this, and I can get you some of those studies if you really want to link to them, although they, they're in academic journals, so they may not be accessible, but mm. um, they have looked and they see how parts of the brain light up when someone is experiencing or witnessing someone else's distress. And so we as bystanders think that just being with someone who's grieving is really uncomfortable. And the reality is it's uncomfortable because we are automatically thinking about what it would be like for us if the same thing happened. Right. And right. we can't bear that. Well, we can, but we don't have the skills to. So we decide, oh, I'm not going to deal with that. So um, I'm just not going to be with this person until she's more normal, until she's like her old self which of course isn't possible right. because you, you can't go back to the person that you were before. Um, and in every griefy kind of circumstance, that's a very official word, griefy, <laughs> there's, um, there's a lot of relationships that dissolve right? because the other person is not able to be there. And then there's the relationships that kind of sneak up on you that you didn't expect where that one very valuable person shows up and stays. Um, so I think one of the, the most important things to support someone who is grieving is to listen. Mm -hmm. 
And we have this tendency when somebody is saying something that we want to jump in and relate our own experiences, or we want to offer solutions. Have you tried grief yoga? I hear that there's a class down at the yoga studio. Or um, my dog died last year and I know just how you feel. And we're doing that from a very earnest, loving place. But oh my goodness, let me tell you how well that is received by grievers. It is not. <laughs> right. And then the griever can feel very angry and frustrated and not want to have a relationship with that person at that time. Right. Because it just feels like you're not, I really want someone to validate my experience and to just sit with me and say, yes, you're right. This is the worst thing ever, and it sucks. And and it's going to be a while till it gets bearable even, you know, like yeah. I think that, that time grace is also really important. Right, because we're impatient mm-hmm. and we want things to pick up. And um, there's grief. There's the the griever's grief, and then there's the grief from the other person that is not being super supportive, but that person is grieving the loss of the relationship because the griever is not able to participate in the relationship the way that it was. So that support person, former friend, whatever you'd like to call that person, Mm -hmm. has, has another little bitty set of grief, and we don't talk about that very much either. Um, But there's just so much going on here and just being human, being compassionate, giving space for people and accepting all emotions. Yeah, because that's important. So some days people are going to feel really angry, enraged. Some days people are going to switch in what seems like a very unstable fashion between laughter and sobbing. Mm -hmm. you know there's all kinds of ways that it shows up and you just got to know that over the long haul things are going to be inconsistent and frankly pretty ugly right yeah and and I think that we can as nannies if if you've listened to this podcast I I know that you've practiced your reflective listening and reflecting emotions back to the children that you care for. That skill, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Shannon, but I think that skill comes in handy here of just see, you know, seeing the emotion, naming the emotion and mm-hmm. and saying, yes, God, I can see how angry this makes you. And yes, you have every right to feel angry. Yeah. yeah. That validation. Having, having a lot of, of space to discuss that or not discuss that, whatever feels comfortable. But um, so often with children, people tend to want to push them along because children are resilient and they're young and they're so moldable. And oh gosh, in three years, this is just not even gonna be a thing. You know, your whole life is ahead of you. And it really, it undermines their experience as humans. Because just because they're young and they haven't lived as long as we have doesn't diminish the intensity 
of their experience. And in fact, I think that you know, due to the developmental stuff, a lot of times what children are experiencing is way more intense than what adults experience. And they don't have all of the connections in their brain to help them make sense of it. So it's torturous. Yeah. It's hard for them in ways that we don't know unless we have been very young people with a lot of grief. And then it's mm -hmm. more relatable. But even so, it's it's different for every person. It's different for every relationship. Yeah. And I I do think what you said earlier about the the tendency to go into problem solving is also really key. Um, and I, I think that that is a, a very um, tempting path for nannies, especially because a lot of what we do for our nanny families is problem solve. Um, that is a part of the service that we provide. Um, but that's not what's needed here. And so just really considering that, that like trying to Anytime it's it's powering through enters your brain mm -hmm. is probably a sign that you're not on the right path. Yeah, that's um, it's such a poor idea because that that hinders so much emotional flexibility, and children are already watching the adults around them practice this this form of grief that we've defined in the predominant culture of the United States as being very private, being independent, being stoic, and being limited, confined, mm -hmm. and of short duration. It's brief. And there's not, um, there's not space for emotional discussions about that because we don't, we don't, as adults allow that to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, I also, I, I, I do, I am curious about, cause I know toxic positivity gets into the water all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know, especially around grief, there's this, like, it'll be okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, attitude. And so I'm curious about, about some things that you've seen that you can help encourage us to avoid um, stepping in those traps of, of toxic positivity, because it feels nice for us to say nice things, but it's not helpful. Yeah. And what that does is that it, it feels good for the person that's saying it. It does not feel good for the person that's receiving it. One of the things that I learned from Hal Runkel, I studied with him when I went to school to be a parent educator. It was a long time ago. Um, he talks a lot about communication. And he said, communication is a gift. And just like any gift, you want to make sure that you are giving it to the recipient in a way that that recipient can actually receive the gift with some grace and gratitude, that the gift is useful, that the gift is appropriate, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and if you're just saying things that don't land with the person that you're speaking to, then you're not communicating. You're just talking. 
<laughs> to yourself. Um, yeah. And yeah. that really struck me because we very often, we default to saying the things like, it's going to be okay, it's going to get better. Um, Well-intentioned family members are likely going to try to move grief along mm-hmm. and say, um, let's go back to our regular schedule. Let's keep ourselves busy so we're distracted and we don't think about it much. We don't want to be sitting around here being sad because the person that died, if it is a person that died, would not want that. That person wouldn't want you to cry. Um, Things like the person being in a better place. Mm -hmm. All of those things are, they're so, they devalue the emotional experience that the person is having. So my approach because I don't like telling people what not to say um but my approach honestly is just to listen a lot and then to maybe ask a couple of questions like if your mom were here right now what do you think that she'd want to talk to you about Mm. or um what's something that you're really missing about her right now yeah those kinds of things that give give them an opportunity to to connect with that grief, to connect with that relationship, and to figure out ways to integrate that relationship into their daily lives after things have come apart. And and little things like one of the things I love doing with kids is um, I do a lot of photography and I teach kids photography, and it's so useful in grief because they can tell the story of how they're feeling without having someone say, well, that's not right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll do these walk-arounds where we're thinking of things that that their person might have really loved to see. You know, you see something in a store that your mom would have worn, and so you photograph it. Or stuff like that, where they have the opportunity to keep returning to that relationship and to continue to nourish that relationship in the way they would do if that person were alive. Mm, I love that. I also love the idea of, um, yeah, just letting them uh, draw or color or, you know, all sorts of art, I think is really dance about, you know, how they're feeling in any given moment where, where there's not, especially for young children, trying to figure out the words for big emotions mm. it it adds this whole thick extra layer of difficulty around an already overwhelming time and so i i really do think that yeah these these ways of of expressing the feelings without words are so useful yeah and it's um you know kids are naturally more in touch with their creativity mm-hmm. up to a certain age and that's when the art teacher starts telling them that oh you're never going to be an artist right which is <sighs> bogus nonsense because yes. I had an art teacher that told me that too so take that 
Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but even simple things for kids that don't feel like they can draw or that painting is hard or sculpting is not their thing. Um, you know, almost every person that I know likes music in some form. So curating playlists for different kinds of emotions that might come up is a really useful thing because the, the, the practice of picking the songs that go on the playlist is is one sort of, um, I can't say therapeutic because I'm not a therapist or any sort of practitioner, but it feels nourishing to be able to do that and then to have them ready so that you can listen to them when you want to. And it could be songs that remind you of someone. It could be songs that remind you of a particular place or a particular time. It could be songs that just have a certain feeling that you really associate with or a set of lyrics that you find very identifiable. And it's normal for someone to want to play the same songs over and over because it feels like through that music, the person that's singing this, the person that wrote the music, the musicians, they are speaking to me and they hear me and they understand me. And I feel safe and respected and validated here. So music can be a really powerful thing. Mm, yes. And I, I also, I agree with you that sometimes even drawing at a certain age, there, there gets to be this, you're doing it wrong mm -hmm. story, either in the kids' heads and or coming directly from adults. And so I, I love things like photography or um, making a playlist because it's, it's less common, I think, <laughs> for adults to say that you're doing those things wrong. I don't think anyone's ever told, you know, a child that they made a playlist wrong, and I hope they never do. Um, <laughs> and so, so I think that that's, those are really good ideas that are um, very, uh, they're they're personal things anyway and so they're not for other people and so there's less less chance that other people's um shadow work gets all over it mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah i i'm also curious about if a nanny is the one that is grieving um you know we've we've spent a lot of this this episode talking about how to support a nanny family, but what if, if the nanny is the one grieving, what are some things that a nanny can do um, when they do return to work to help nourish themselves or um, be gentle with themselves? That is a fantastic consideration. And one of the things I feel very strongly about is that grief is a community responsibility. Mm. that in the past 100 years, um, after the, the funeral industry got established with the Civil War, grief started becoming more, um, death started becoming more of a medical event, and grief started becoming more and more private, mm -hmm. and something that we just left people to do. And I think that it needs to be a community thing, meaning that it's useful to you, even if you feel like there's no way that you could talk about it with someone. 
that having someone close to you that can check in with you once in a while and not put any pressure on you to discuss things or hash stuff out or solve problems, but just someone that you know that you can turn to where anything that you say is okay, where anything that you say has value, um, someone that's going to give you a lot of grace for the days when you are not very pleasant. Right. Because you will have those. I think it's, it's so common for people to hold things together and package themselves so tightly when they go back to work and they feel like these fragile beings inside, but they've put up this big plaster wall around them. And then they get to a safer space and stuff falls apart. So having people that you know that you can turn to that are okay with the the fragileness of the you that maybe lots of other people don't get to see. It yeah. goes way beyond the self-care stuff about make sure that you are, are taking a shower and that you're eating nutritious food. If you want to stand in front of the freezer and eat ice cream out of the container, then right. do that. If that's what feels good. And then there's going to be other days where you want to run for five miles and the farthest that you've run before is down the block. You know, you're going to do strange things. Right. So knowing that grief is a physical experience that you will feel it in your body and it's going to hurt. That grief is a mental experience. You are going to forget things. It's going to be hard for you to make decisions. It could go on for a very, very long time, much longer than you expect. Um, and then there's the emotional stuff. And knowing that all of that exists and being, not that you can ever be prepared for it, but that you have some tools available to you. So one of the things I recommend to people is they, they start coming up with exits for when they're in certain situations. If you are trying to get back to life, whatever that means for you, so you're going back to work, um, and you have a moment where you feel like the walls are closing in around you and you're going to spill your stuff all over the place, mm -hmm. have an exit plan. Know where you can go. Um, talk with somebody in advance so that you have somebody that you can send a quick message to or, you know, something like that so you don't feel like you have to do everything by yourself and something that acknowledges that this is going to be hard for you for a long time and that is normal and appropriate and ugly and beautiful all at the same time yeah yeah and I also I think that there also is potentially a beauty in what we do um in that a child will sit with you <laughs> while you cry yes. um, in a way, you know, as, as nannies, that's that that's what we get to do. And I, I think that it is, it's really valuable for a child to see their nanny cry and to say, you know, I'm feeling really, really sad today. Um, mm -hmm. 
I, I think that that's a bonus, not a negative. Um, you know, I, it, it's, it's a, a difficult thing and it's hard and it might be a signal that you, you aren't ready to come back to work yet. But I also think that it's, it's not a bad thing to let a child see you grieve. Absolutely. It's an opportunity to normalize it so that it becomes a part of life. I just weeks ago, I was sitting at my computer and if I'm doing memorial art, I am, I take in so many stories about what life used to be like for people mm-hmm. and how much anguish there is in having someone die or having a long stretch of hospice with some intense caregiving and then having that come to an end. Um, And so I'm sitting at my computer and I'm just sobbing. And my young person who is seven, he saw me and he came over and I said, I'm, I'm thinking about this other stuff right now and it feels very hard and heavy. And I said a couple of other things about what I was feeling. And he put his arms around me and he said, I'm thinking about you, mom. And that was it. You know, that was all that I needed. Just to have another human witness what I was feeling and not, not try to figure it out or label it or dismiss it, but to say, I see this and I love you and I'm here and I'm thinking about you and there's no pressure. There's no expectation beyond that. Just that we are here together now and that is good. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think for nannies there, there is this, this really lovely opportunity to allow the children that we've cared for to show up for us too. Yeah. Um, that's such a, a lovely story that you just shared. Thank you. Um, is there, are there, there books or resources that you have found to be particularly helpful um, when, when dealing in grief? There are, there are two that I solidly recommend to everybody because they're just, they're so approachable and they're very conversational. Mm. Um, They don't have the clinical feel to them, which I think is off-putting for a lot of people. They're not specific to grief for kids or grief for certain circumstances or anything like that, but they're, um, I think they're both excellent for compassion and for empathy. And those are the two really critical things for whether it's your own grief or someone else's. And one is called, there is no good card for this. Mm. And it's written by Kelsey Crow and Emily McDowell. Kelsey Crow is a, she's a mental health practitioner and Emily McDowell is an artist. She started a greeting card company. Um, they have both had significant grief in their lives. And so they're coming at this from real world experiences. And they talk a lot about the things that were beneficial for them in the early 
the early days of their grief and as it moved on, what kinds of things people said and did that were helpful and definitely what kinds of things people said and did that were not helpful. Right. So that's a really good one. Yeah. I love Emily McDowell and I I've gotten a lot of like cards from her and, um, and, uh, postcards even I got like her, she has a book of postcards for, uh, grief and, and, situations where you're trying to express empathy. So I did not know that she had written mm-hmm. a book. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it, the whole reason she started that company was for empathy cards. Oh. She, she thought that the ones that were available were terrible. And as someone that had connecting with her at all. Um, so the book is very to the style that you know of her cards where it's it's salty and it's real and it's um it's just very frank and there's nothing that's off limits and and yet there's this humor that underlines everything that says you know it's it's okay to talk about this we don't have to make big jokes about it but this is a safe space and whatever you're feeling is okay yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, and then you mentioned that there, there's a second book you'd recommend. Yes. The uh, second book is one that a lot of people have heard of, and it's called It's Okay That You Are Not Okay. That's by Megan Devine. And she is a licensed mental health professional, also with her own experience in grief. Um, and this book is it's still very approachable and very warm, but it has more of a serious tone to it. So while there is no good card for this is cheeky mm-hmm. and irreverent with some very serious content. It's okay that you're not okay is, um, it feels heavier. It feels more somber. It feels more like what people would associate a grief book feeling like, but it's very, very approachable. It would be like the conversation that you have with a good friend. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's lovely to have that spectrum of, of options because, you know, like you were talking about with the playlist, sometimes you want a certain type of emotion to be highlighted. So I think, um, I think that having those, those options is wonderful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah, but um, there's also potentially a lot of um, <laughs> of overwhelming. I mean, you know, if you Google like how to get over grief, um, I think I think there's a lot of dangerous stuff out there too. Can you speak a little bit to that? Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> This is a, this is very painful for me because I see a lot of people in the grief space that are doing things to me that feel like they're taking advantage of vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. I know that when people create the stuff that they're putting out there, that they're doing it from a place that, that feels helpful because they want to help. Um, But it's so important to remember that just because I have an experience where I felt better after doing these four things and it changed my life 
and now I feel functional again and I can return to work and I'm not crying every day, that doesn't mean that the four things that I did are going to work well for someone else. That doesn't mean that the four things that I did are going to work for the next major loss and grief event that I have. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And so there are a lot of people out there that are doing programs and methods and um, gosh, it feels very snake oily kind of to me, yeah, yeah. which I don't like saying, um, but they're putting a lot of pressure on people just in the way that they're describing their work. So they'll, they'll say, this is the new way to grieve. This is the better way to grieve. There was somebody that was starting a podcast called Grieve Better and then was informed that that was a um, trademark violation because someone else had already trademarked the name. And I thought, oh my gosh, I want to kick a whole bunch of people in the face (laughs) (laughs) because this is, is, you shouldn't even be telling people to grieve better Better because the way that... (laughs) may not be the way that feels better to that person. And, and you can't say, Hey, you over there, I noticed that you're grieving in this way. And what I think needs to be happening is this stuff over here that you haven't addressed. You can't say that. Right. Right. And even if you've experienced lots of grief in your life, you can look back and notice that at different times in your life, for different relationships, for different reasons, your grief was different. And just because you have a lot of practice with it or a lot of experience with it doesn't mean that you're better at it. Right. It just means that you have more experience and you have more ideas of what feels good and what doesn't feel good, but that it's going to change every time. So for me, the field of grief resources is a lot like fake news because mm-hmm. there's there's stuff out there that's just not helpful. But there are places that are consistently putting out responsible and compassionate content like um, What's Your Grief? That's a website, whatsyourgrief.com. They do a lot of great blog posts there. They do some grief groups. They do, um, they have a photography community, hmm. which is wonderful because photography is such a great way to access your feelings. Um, there is uh, also the Center for Loss and Transition that's run by Alan Wolfelt. Really good stuff there. But, you know, there are like, uh, there's a place called the Grief Recovery Institute that I have a hard time getting behind because I don't think there is recovery. Right. I think it's just something that you integrate into your life. And by saying that recovery is possible is giving people the sense that, that if they do everything that you say, that they're going to feel like they did before. Right. And they're not. And then when they don't feel like they did before, a lot of times they, and people end up blaming themselves yeah, and, I did this wrong. Yeah, and it's like no. They're or, they're asking something that's not possible from you. Right. Or worse that people will say things like I'm not honoring my grandmother or I'm not honoring my partner mm-hmm. because I'm still stuck in grief because that person wouldn't want me to feel this way and I'm not doing it right and I feel like I can't move on. Well, oh my goodness, no, 
no, no to all of that. Just no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is really an important point, I think, especially because I, I think right now around the world, people are dealing with grief for the first time mm-hmm. um, at a higher volume per day than we've seen in our lifetimes. And so I, th- I think that there's going to be a lot more snake oil out there um, mm-hmm. because when there is a need, uh, it, gets, it gets filled with all kinds of things. And when you're in, in the middle of grief, uh, you might not be able to spot that snake oil as easily. So I, I appreciate you guiding towards some um, helpful resources and, and pointing out flag posts to stay away from some others. Yeah, anybody that says that it's a that you can do things in a short amount of time to feel better, to get back to your old self, or to release things, or you know, all of that is not helpful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? I know. I mean, we we could talk about this for our life uh, you have been talking about this for your life you know like I, I understand that it's a it's a really big topic but is there anything else that you'd like listeners to to be able to take away from this episode um I think a big of your own instincts and feelings about what's right and what's appropriate and a lot of the time where grief is concerned what feels right what feels most humane and most compassionate is direct again to go with your gut right. but I think that's one of the small things that doesn't feel very small that we need to start doing which is why conversations like this are so helpful that it's it's okay for someone to tell you um, that you should be doing something differently and for you to respond to that with a really weird feeling in your stomach and think to yourself, mm, no, that's okay. I no, I couldn't do that. Yeah. And that's that's okay. You have your own wisdom about it. And there's nobody, I don't think there's any such thing as a grief expert because as much as we study it, it is different every time, every person, every relationship, every life stage, it's different. So you can't know what to do. You just have to feel your way through it which is brutal, Mm -hmm. but it's got to be done. Right. The only way through is through. I was going to say out, but I, I don't even want to think about it as out. The only way, the only way forward is to, to keep going. Uh, Yeah. There's, I don't think the, I don't think you can come out on the other side. I think it's just one of those things. I, I changed my perception of grief when I decided to give her a name and I consider her a close friend. So sometimes she shows up at my house unannounced Mm -hmm. and I say, this isn't a good time. Come back later. And sometimes she shows up at my house and she's breaking in the windows. (laughs) She says, you will see me now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and we have that kind of relationship. But when I give her the connection 
that the relationship deserves. She doesn't break my windows. Mm-hmm. And I set a spot for her at the dinner table. And she's welcome to come whenever she wants with the understanding that I can tell her this isn't a good time if it's not a good time. Right. Um, but just seeing it like that has been a huge difference for me that yeah. I feel much more relaxed about it. It's not something that I need to stuff away in a closet and close the door. It, she has a name. I have a relationship with her that's separate from the grief that I have for particular relationships. And um, she needs care. She needs attention. She needs connection. And I can give her those things. That's important to me as a way to honor everyone else that I grieve. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Well, wonderful. this this episode in particular, um, I I think that it's it's lovely that we get to end on on a, a fun cute story, um, you know, mm-hmm. on a on a on a moment of joy. So um, Shannon has has brought one for us. Yes, um, my grandmother died. What year was that? Twenty eighteen, I think. Mm-hmm. It was a couple of years ago. And my young person was four at the time, somewhere around. I mean, he was a he was a little guy, right? And oh, was it was grandfather? Grandmother came after. So grandfather, it was a couple of years earlier, twenty sixteen, okay. I think. Um, anyway, we drove down for the viewing. We're at the the funeral home, and there he is in his casket. And he's sitting, my, my young person, my son is sitting in a chair in the corner of a room. And um, my grandfather's sister and her husband were there. And I am explaining everything that's going on. And I'm being very frank and real. And I see my grandfather's sister cutting just really terrible looks at me. Like, you have no right to be telling this child about death and very much a generational difference. Um, so, you know, we were having a, a light but serious The air in the room was very heavy. And then it was a long fart. <laughs> My son pointed this out that adults would just move on. But not my young person. He says, Mom. You know the stage whisper kind of thing? Yes, yes. And he says, did you hear that? Someone just farted. And I said, yes, I did hear that. And sometimes that happens. Um, and so the <laughs> my grandfather's sister and her husband immediately left the room. And I had that moment where I was feeling embarrassed and awkward because I certainly didn't want someone else to feel embarrassed or awkward about what had happened because it is normal and natural because people fart and sometimes they do it in places where other people don't want to hear it or smell it but by golly it happens (laughs) um and so for him to take that situation where there is a dead body in a casket with lots of flowers in the space that's supposed to look like a living room, but very clearly isn't. It's a funeral home. 
And there are people standing around and feeling sad and heavy. And he's giggling about farts. (laughs) I mean, that for me was, it spoke so much about why it's been important for me to bring him along to funerals, to bring him to viewings, to bring him to memorial services and things like that. Because it's, he came with me when I did hospice care for my grandmother and he helped. It's important to see this as part of life, just like farts are a part of life and by not talking about them and pretending that you didn't hear them or smell them they don't go away right oh yes what a beautiful metaphor (laughs) or not or not but I think it's great (laughs) oh I love that so much thank you Shannon I just about peed my pants when he said that because you know that that little kid earnestness did you hear that? <laughs> yes, I think everybody heard that. <laughs> yep, yep, we all heard it. <laughs> yep. Oh, I love that. Um, well, thank you so much, Shannon. I really appreciate you taking time uh, to talk to me about this. Thank you for inviting this conversation because it's Every time people talk about this, it makes things a little bit easier for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. The Chronicles of Nania is produced and hosted by Martha Tyler. Artwork by Noni Blastodon. Theme music by Brad Kemp. Find him at secondbedroomstudios.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Chronicles of Nania and on Twitter at Nania Podcast. To contact us, email chroniclesofnania at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This show has been brought to you by Machine Culture. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.